Just wonderful to see uh, Galen and Linda Kostler uh, back after several weeks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Linda, you're a fighter. You're very brave. We're very uh, proud of you. And, um, wow, we're, we're so thankful to God for the surgical team that, that worked on Linda. And they were so gracious, along with all the nurses uh, at the hospital. So we have been praying for you. We've been praying for your whole family, but especially for you, Linda. And we'll continue uh, to do that in the days to come. A couple other things to draw your attention to, and these are in the bulletin, is uh, first I want to remind you of the, the Read It selection for this month. Is uh, you, can, you can read about that in the bulletin. This is John MacArthur's new book, The Gospel According to God. I, I made a bit of an executive decision and didn't purchase uh, a handful of these like we usually do. It's a little bit more expensive uh, than I was comfortable with. And so you can always go to Amazon to pick up uh, one of these, or I believe the Kindle version is only uh, about $10, but I had a chance to get a pre-release copy of this several months ago, uh, read it rather quickly, and was uh, just delighted with the contents, and I want to commend it to you. Also, uh, you will notice that this is To Every Nation Month, and so we want to highlight another uh, country. Uh, that God loves and is doing mighty things in that country. That is the, the island of Indonesia. I want you just to uh, imagine, don't need to shout it out or anything, but imagine how many people live on Indonesia. And I'm going to throw out the number and it will just, just flabbergast you. 267 million people. The capital is Jakarta, uh, 10 million residents in Jakarta, and probably more than any other nation that I've been uh, familiar with over the years, it, it is a diverse population, over 750 distinct people groups. Many of those people groups uh, have not been touched with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Indonesia has really a, a growing and an up-and-coming economy. Gas and forest products, agriculture, mineral, mineral reserves really guide that economy. The politics, uh, the government's stated priorities are boosting the economy, number one, uh, creating more jobs, number two, and stamping out corruption, number three. That should tell you a bit about what's happening in Indonesia. Now, when you think religion, and feel free to just shout it out, what, what is the dominant religion in Indonesia? I think I heard Islam. Yeah, Islam is the dominant religion. Uh, it represents 80% of the population. However, it, it is a, a bit of a shock for some people to learn that there are six officially recognized religions by the government in Indonesia, beginning with Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism. Ten percent of the population is represented by Bible-believing Christians. So let me give you a few prayer needs, uh, and I want to commend those to you, and we can pray together as a church for the nation of Indonesia. First, 
Pray for pastors to boldly proclaim the truth and to turn away from error, to turn away from false teaching, most notably the lie of the prosperity gospel that seems to have gained some some momentum in Indonesia. Pray for new believers who come from a Muslim background. As you know that when a Muslim uh, professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is usually persecution attached to that, uh, usually abandonment or exile in a, a given family. Pray also for a church in every village to be planted. The vision is this, to see at least one church planted in each of Indonesia's 76,000 villages in one generation. 45,000 of those villages lack a single church plant. And then finally, pray for the work of Bible translation. There are at least, that I know of, 150 projects where the Bible is being translated into the heart language of the people. And so this is a, an area where God has done some amazing things in years past and I believe will continue to do a mighty work. We pray together with me. Father, I want to continue to pray for the Costlers and especially pray for Linda and ask that you would uh, enable her by your grace to to um, continue to recover day by day. Pray that each day she would get stronger and stronger and rely upon your grace. Thank you, as mentioned before, the the doctors, the physicians and the nurses who have taken care of her for many weeks now. And we thank you for the gifts that you gave them under the banner of your common grace. God, they they did an amazing thing and we thank you for them. Just continue to encourage the Costlers, God, as they rely on you in the days ahead. We also pray for Indonesia. We thank you for the good things that have happened in, in the past and ask that good things would continue to transpire in the future. Pray for the work of uh, Bible translations. Pray for churches to be planted. We pray, God, that Bible-believing Christians would be raised up to help lead the local church. Pray for pastors that they would be bold in their proclamation of the gospel, that they would steer clear from false teaching, that they would steer clear from the prosperity doctrine, God. Pray that they would be uh, faithful witnesses in this generation. So we commit these dear people to you, millions upon millions of people who need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the age or the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. Thus begins the dearly beloved novel... A Tale of Two Cities, penned by Charles Dickens in 1859. Charles Dickens plunges readers into one of history's most riveting and fascinating eras, most notably the French Revolution. From the storming of the Bastille to the relentless drop of the guillotine, Charles Dickens vividly captures the terror and the upheaval of that most tumultuous period. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul plunges his readers into a very different kind of a drama. This drama involves what I like to refer to as the tale of two cities. I want to take a few minutes by way of introduction and describe those cities to you. The first is what I like to refer to as the city of man. 
This is a city that is characterized by sin and selfishness. The city of man is marked by people who are self-seeking, by people who refuse to obey the truth. It is marked by people who uh, love pleasure and delight in pursuing unrighteousness. Now, as you first uh, glance at this city, the city of man, you may be impressed initially. You may be drawn in by these enticements. After all, this is where, as the young people say, it's where the action is. This is where I play by my rules. This is where I chart my course. This is where I determine my values. This is where I spend my money in the way that pleases me the most. In the city of man, I call the shots. Sex outside the walls of the castle of marriage, immorality, loose living, rampant drug abuse, anything goes in the city of man. It is tolerated. It is celebrated. Now, as you make your way into the the city gates of the city of man, you will discover above your heads a massive banner. And etched onto that banner is one word that best describes every single inhabitant in that city. And the word that is etched onto this banner that you will see as we make our way into the city of man is the word autonomy. Autonomy. It's a word we don't hear an awful lot in the 21st century and in in the western part of the world. But autonomy is really two Greek words smashed together. And we we know both those words pretty well, especially the the word auto. What is an automobile? It's a self-moving vehicle. An auto is a self But the second part of the word in autonomy comes from a lesser-known word, a Greek word, and it's the word nomos. And nomos is translated into English as law. And so you put self and law together, you smash them together, and what do you have? An autonomous person is a law unto themselves. This is a person who refuses to submit to any authority except himself. This is a person who refuses to submit, most notably, to the authority of a sovereign God. The people in the city of man live with no accountability from other people. These people live with no accountability from God. They live reckless lives, and they sin freely. And I might add, they love it. Why? Because they have learned that sin is fun. The people in the city eventually have to give an account for the recklessness of their ways. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2 verse 8. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. At first, everything seems to be on the up and up. When we think about the city, everything appears to be right about the city. The glitz, the glamour, the excitement, the entertainment, the amusement. May I remind you that the definition of muse, M-U-S-E, is to become absorbed in thought. To muse means to think about something, to meditate about something Clearly 
and thoughtfully. And so a passion for amusement, are you with me? The A cancels out the, the musing, and so this proposes an opposite lifestyle, an amusement lifestyle. And the Bible offers a warning that each one of us must heed. It goes like this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 says, if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and your sin will find you out. This is the city of man. But then there's another city. This city is what we refer to as the city of God. This city recognizes the rule and the reign of one who is sovereign, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the inhabitants of the city find great joy and great delight in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They find great delight and great joy in submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. All the inhabitants of this city are, are captivated by the knowledge of God. They find great pleasure in doing what pleases Him. The inhabitants of the city of God understand the words of the psalmist that say, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, before we dig into this passage, I want you to understand something vitally important. I want you to understand that every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is an inhabitant this morning in one of two cities. You only have two choices. You can place your stake in the city of God or you can place your stake in the city of man. And the city that you call home will have radical earth-shattering implications for not only your life now, but also your life in the days to come after you die. The title of the message, and I hope Mr. Dickens will give me some leeway. The title of the message is A Tale of Two Cities. Would you stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 17? May I remind you that this is the word of God. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, once again, this is a, a very serious passage that we hold before us. 
These are sobering words, and I, I pray that as we begin to, to tour the city of man and the city of God, that you would give us great clarity. I, I thank God today of, of someone who is here who is not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made stake their claim in the city of man. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the wonder of the gospel. I pray that you would make them aware of the hopelessness of the city of man. And God, for believers, I, I pray that you would help us to delight in what you have delivered us from, namely from the city of man to the city of God. May we walk away today rejoicing in, in all that you have done in our lives, that you would, you would enable us by your grace to see wonderful things in your law. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul draws a sharp, a very sharp contrast between what we're labeling the two cities. He helps us to see that the, the people represented in these cities live in two totally different ways. The people in the city of man and the city of God live totally distinct lives. Last week, as I had a chance to visit with one of my friends, and you know who you are, this gentleman came up to me and he, he thanked me for our time together and he said, there was a lot in that passage. And I, I knew exactly what he was saying, like, wow, I wasn't able to cover everything in an adequate way. And so I want to thank that friend because as I studied this passage, I had originally fully intended to, to preach a message on the city of man and the city of God, a tale of two cities. And as I studied through, I got to realizing there is no way, there is no way I can adequately unpack what's happening in these two cities in one sermon. And so here's our strategy. Today we will look at the city of man. And next week we will take a tour of the city of God. Before we do that, I want to walk you through something by way of introduction. It's what I like to refer to as the profile of a person. Now, I realize in a post-9-11 era, it, it, it just does not work well to profile anyone or anything. But when we read the Bible, it is absolutely essential that we profile ourselves as people. It's important to recognize, first of all, that both the inhabitants of the city of man and the inhabitants of the city of God are all marked by the image of God. We are all image bearers. We have been created, as Genesis 1.27 reminds us, in the image of God. Every person, in addition to the people living in the city of man and the city of God, also possess three faculties. Both Christians and unbelievers possess the faculties of a mind and the faculty of affections and a faculty we refer to as the will. I want to look at this next slide and have you walk through this with me very basically. I want you to understand, first of all, what the mind is. By the way, may I ask you, how many of you possess a mind? Six of you. That's great. We all possess minds. What does the mind do? Let's look at the next slide. In the mind, this is where we process things. We, we think about things in the mind. We, we learn in the mind. If you had a chance to read the Word of God or a good Christian book this morning, it takes place in the faculty of the mind. Additionally, in the mind, this is where we accumulate thoughts. 
This is where we make plans. This is where we make judgments. This is where we are able to determine what is right and what is wrong and what God approves of and what God disapproves of. It all takes place in the mind. But then turn your attention to the second faculty, the faculty of the affections. It's a a word that we don't use much anymore in the English language. In the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, one of the best books he ever wrote, entitled Religious Affections. The affections, you see, describe the longings of our hearts. You can actually insert the word heart. This is where our our longings, our desires take place. It's where our revulsions take place. So, for instance, let me try something with you. When I say the word broccoli, I saw some very interesting responses. And I heard upstairs, it's the sound man who went, right? Now, that's coming right Right from the affections. It's that's something that I just don't like at all. When I say the Seattle Mariners, the response is careful. Yeah. Hopefully, rah rah. All right? And so this is where our affections reside. It's the thing we things we love and it's the things that we even hate. Finally, the will. The will or the volition is simply where we make our choices. It's where our actions reside. And so every person in the the city of man and the city of God, both marked by the image of God, have three faculties. The faculties of the mind, the affection, and also the will. In the city of man, we find something very interesting. We find that these three faculties... The mind, the affection, and the will have been not 50%, not 90%, not even 99%. They have been 100% corrupted. The Bible describes the origin of this corruption. It goes all the way back to our first father. His name is Adam. Paul describes it in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And it's a delight for me on Mother's, Dis- on Mother's Day to say it wasn't Eve's fault. Yeah! Wow! Who bears the blame for original sin? You say, but pastor, Eve was the one who partook of the fruit, but Adam was her covenant head. Adam was the leader in the relationship. And so Paul says that sin came into the world, not through one woman, but through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. David said it like this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some philosophers, even some theologians, say that children are born with a blank slate, a a tabula rasa. Nothing can be further from the truth. When a child is born, that person emerges as as a beautiful baby who is a sinner. Every single one of them. For Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so here's Paul's strategy in Ephesians 4, 17 and, and, and further. He exposes the radical depravity 
that characterizes what he refers to as the Gentiles or the pagan worldview. He takes us into the, into the inner sanctum of the pagan's life and he exposes his worldview. It's kind of like in The Wizard of Oz. When the characters in The Wizard of Oz, are, what are they going to do? They're off to see the wizard. The wonderful Wizard of Oz. I was hoping someone would jump in. <laughs> They're off to see the wizard. And they get to the end of the story and they're so excited to see the wizard and somehow I think the dog does something to the curtain and the curtain opens and who's the wizard? It's this measly little nincompoop, right? It's this little man. He's not this mighty wizard. He's a goofball. He's a goofball. And so Paul takes us into the inner sanctum of the pagan's life and exposes his worldview for what it is. And this is to the point where, has anyone ever done something to you and, and you said, man, that, that was really personal. You said some things that really ooh, got under my skin. We're going to move this morning from merely being personal to what some people consider meddling. Some of you this morning are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we are so happy that you are here. We are so excited that you are here, but you're going to experience something this morning that you may have not anticipated when you got in your car to come to Christ Fellowship. And it's not going to be me that does it. The Apostle Paul is going to expose your pagan worldview. And before you get upset at me or upset at the word of God or upset at God, I need to remind you of this, that too many believers these days are, are failing to speak the truth in love. I had a conversation with my dear friend a few days ago, and we were talking about this. And my question was this, if, if your loved one was in a burning building would you just walk away or would you yell to your friend, you're in a burning building, get out. Wouldn't that be the most loving thing? And so that, that is the strategy today as we, as we unravel the city of man. It's as if every unbeliever in the city of man is in this burning city. And my challenge is to say, flee from the city because this is what the city is comprised of. And so look with me in verses 17 to 19 at the city of man. And as we examine the city of man, we are going to look at the corrupted faculties. And this will be review for you because we're going to learn about the mind. We're going to learn about the affection. We're going to learn about the will. But start with me in the mind. The mind, again, includes your, your beliefs and your, your values. The mind determines how your will will respond. The mind includes your intellect and involves your reason. When I say to myself, and this is about as far as it goes for me in mathematics, 2 plus 3 equals 5. Anything else is just kind of beyond the pale for me. But when I say 2 plus 3 equals 5, I am reasoning. I am remembering what I was taught when I was in second grade. Paul tells us that the city, the citizens of the city of man are characterized by a mind that is futile. Now you know what I mean by meddling. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
One thing that we don't see emerging in our English translations is if you would mark the word do, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that word do is written in the Greek in the present tense, which means this. Everything that we're going to talk about for the next several minutes, the Gentiles or these pagan unbelievers do it habitually. Everything that I'm going to mention over the next few minutes, this is something that doesn't just happen once or twice. The Gentiles, the the pagan unbelievers, they do this as a matter of habit. It's kind of like this. I love to exercise. So I get up in the morning. As a matter of habit, I exercise. Paul would use the word do. I do it every day. Now, in this case, we see that the mind is futile. I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Notice, in the futility of their minds. What does that word mean? It means useless as a consequence of being purposeless. It means you you have a purposeless life, that you're incapable of producing results, that your mind is empty, that your mind is filled with vain thoughts. You say, but you have, you have no idea what you're talking about. I am a self-made woman, or I am a self-made man, or you would not believe my portfolio. I will run circles around you. Notice what Paul's saying, though. He's saying that the mind is futile. The same word is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Peter says, for speaking loud boasts of folly, that's the same word translated as futile in Ephesians 4, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping for those who live in error. Now, something we need to make very clear. When Paul says that the pagan mind is futile, he is in no way implying that the pagan mind is unintelligent, right? We all know men and women who have more degrees than Fahrenheit, right? They have PhDs uh, coming out of the tops of their shirts. They, they, They are smart individuals. Paul does not mean that this person has no capacity for learning or for reasoning. Rather, he means this. As educated as a pagan may be, as smart as an unbeliever may be, he means this, that the pagan mind rejects the words in this book. The pagan mind repudiates the law of God. The pagan mind refuses to honor God, and he refuses to give God the glory for anything. In Romans 1, Paul says in verse 21 that although they knew God, they did not honor him as as God or give thanks to him. Why? Because they became futile. That's the same word translated in Ephesians 4 as folly or futile. He said they were futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so instead of believing the truth, what does the pagan mind do? The pagan mind suppresses the truth. And I've shared this illustration many times before and it bears repeating. You go to hang out at the swimming pool with your friends and you have that beach ball. And I used to play it when I was a child. In fact, I still kind of like to do it now. You love to take the beach ball to the bottom. And see how long you can hold it there. But something always happens. When you let go, what happens, Ethan? Not just goes up, it always goes bloop. 
It always does that. That's what we learn in Romans chapter 1. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the atheist can suppress and suppress and suppress, but one day that atheist will say, I see the light. Some will see the light before they die. Some will see the light after they die and will be judged for all eternity. Some of you are familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, a former lesbian professor at Syracuse University who is now an avid follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In her new book, she describes her mother, who is a lifelong atheist, a lifelong atheist, and uh, she contracted a terminal disease. And all the way, almost to the bitter end, her mother was resisting the truth, was repudiating the truth, was rejecting the law of God, was rejecting the law and the gospel. Finally, at one exchange, as they sat next to one another, Rosaria Butterfield's mother was in bed. She's on her deathbed, and Rosaria shares the gospel once again. And Rosaria Butterfield's mom says, You don't really believe that blank, do you? It wasn't too many days later, before she died, she said to her daughter, Miss Butterfield, she said, Honey, I think I've come to the place where I'd like to get to know the shepherd. And she says, don't, don't bother with the periphery stuff. I just want to know how my sins can be forgiven. <laughs> and she professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ hours before she breathed her last breath. You see, the pagan mind is committed to this pattern of futility that we see in Ephesians 4. But there's another aspect of the pagan mind and worldview that we need to come to grips with. And it's also found in this passage in verse 18. Look at it with me. Paul says, They are darkened in their understanding. That word understanding comes from a Greek word that means our attitude or our way of thinking. It's a word that describes our our thought patterns or the ways that we perceive the world. Now notice how Paul describes the understanding of the pagan mind. He says that it is darkened. That comes from a word that means, listen, a person who is unable and unwilling to perceive or understand something. In this case, it's the truth of the gospel. And Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, but the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. So I could sum up the mind by saying this, apart from the free grace that is found in God's good gifts, the pagan mind will never accept the truth of God's word. Apart from God's grace, the pagan mind is simply unable to accept or believe the truth of the gospel. And I know the illustration is rather crude, but it's as it, it would be like trying to convince your blind friend to rejoice in the beauty of the sunset. You're just like, but you have to rejoice in your blind friends. Just like, thanks, Steve, you wonder. I, I just, I don't, I don't got it. I, I don't see it, right? And I understand that's a very crude illustration, but that's what happens in the heart of an unbelieving person. 
The radical effects of sin on the life of an unconverted mind is absolutely devastating. There is an unrelenting fog that smothers the unconverted mind. So we have seen that this mind is both futile and darkened, but now Paul shifts his attention from the mind to the affections. He turns his attention to the affections, and he begins by looking at it in verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding. We've seen that alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. I mentioned earlier that the affections, or simply put, the heart, is where we express who we are. It's our inner self. The heart is where your longings reside. It's where your desires emerge. It's when you you love or hate something. This is a function of the heart. And Paul says three things that plague the affections, that plague the unconverted heart. First he says, and, and this is where it will appear once again like a meddling, like the Word of God is meddling. Verse 18 says, the heart is ignorant. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in a classroom and the teacher says, who has the answer to the question? And I raise my hand and I give the wrong answer and the teacher looks at me and says, you're ignorant. Whoa. Anyone with me? Like, I don't like to be called ignorant, but this is what the Word of God says about the unbelieving heart. The word ignorant means lacking education that leads to reprehensible behavior. The same word is occurring in Acts 17.30 where we read the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Peter uses the word in 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the patterns of your former ignorance. So the, the heart is ignorant. Notice second, the heart is also hardened. Verse 18 says this heart is hardened, which means spiritual stubbornness. That's the portrait of the unconverted heart. I would ask parents, have you ever had the chance of, of saying to your, your toddler or your young child, young man, young lady, no cookies for dinner? Before dinner, not for, for dinner would be great too. But the child walks over and literally puts his or her hand on the cookie and you say, young man, I told you not to take the cookie. And what happens? The arms are folded, the lip sticks out, have you seen that? It wasn't just my children that did that. A few of you have seen that. That's exactly what Paul is describing here. The heart is hardened. The heart also in verse 19 says is callous. It means to become unfeeling without shame. You've seen this kind of callousness when a convicted criminal stands before a judge, and the judge makes it very clear, you are guilty and you're going to spend the rest of your days in jail. And if a convicted criminal is callous, that person will stand there without an expression on his or her face. Such is the reality of the heart of the unconverted person in the city of man. Notice the result of this ignorant, hardened heart. Paul says that this person is alienated from the life 
of God. To be alienated means to be a foreigner. It means to be excluded. Jonathan Edwards says, He who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God upon his heart. So we've seen the mind, we've seen the affections. I want to close by having you look with me at the will of the unconverted man in the city of man. And the key word to understand the will of people in the city of man is found in verse 19. And I want to unpack this carefully for you. Notice, they have become callous, which we've seen, and have, here's here's the key, given themselves up. They've given themselves up. The word given comes from the word that means literally to force or compel into a state or a condition. It means to hand someone over to an authority. It would be like this. Imagine, if you will, if you like police dramas on television, imagine a group of law enforcement agents outside a barricaded house filled with criminals, drug dealers, and the criminals eventually surrender. Their hands are up, guns trained between their eyes. This is the picture that you should have in your mind in verse 19. But instead of surrendering to the police, the residents of the city of man surrender to two very different things. Notice what they surrender to. They have given themselves up first to sensuality, which means sinful abandon or licentiousness. And many will follow their sensuality, Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 2. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Paul says that the works of the flesh are evident in Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. But there's something else that the the pagan worldview or the pagan will has given himself up to. And that is impurity. Read it with me given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That word means immorality, especially sexual sin. In Romans one we've seen this, that God gave them up to the lust of their heart to impurity. There's the word he uses in Ephesians 4, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, generally, as we look at the corrupted faculties, the corrupted mind, the corrupted affections, the corrupted will, the subject will invariably rise. And my suspicion is some of you are asking it right now. And the question is a very important one. What about free will? You see, free will is at the very center of who we are as Americans, is it not? If I were to survey a large group of people about the subject of free will, the results would look something like this, illustrated by this this chart on the screen. On the left side of the chart, you would have individuals who say, I don't believe in free will. And I would say in this congregation, there may be a handful of people who say, nope, I don't believe in free will. But the vast majority of people both in the church, both in the city of God and the city of man, will say, we are strong proponents of free will. We believe in free will. But it's important 
that we look carefully at what this means. What does it mean to believe in free will? And so I want to really, as a, as a sort of a footnote, walk you through what I'd like to label as a primer on free will. If I were to ask you, and I promise I won't, if I were to ask you to raise your hands and, and ask you, how many of you believe in free will? 95% of you would say, I believe in free will. Then I would want to ask a follow-up question. What do you mean when you say you believe in free will? Many of you would say this, and many Americans would say this. It means I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. And did you know that that definition of free will is never found in Scripture? It's never found in Scripture. And so let's do this primer on the free will. Let's look at the, the screen here. As we examine the primer on free will, there are three things that we need to understand about free will. The first is that, yes, indeed, every person possesses free will. I just want to get that out in the open as we look at the city of man. Every person both in the city of man and the city of God, possesses a free will. That is to say, people make free choices. If you're looking for a definition, that would be an entry-level definition, that free creatures have the ability to make free choices. But this is where definitions become very important. If by free will you mean absolute Total freedom set apart from the control of God. You need to understand once again that this version of free will is never taught in Scripture. Second of all, every person chooses according to their strongest inclinations. This may be the most important thing I could say right now about free will. That if you will internalize this and understand that, first of all, we possess free will, but also we choose according to our strongest inclinations, it will help you a great deal. Now I want you to think about the strongest inclinations of the unconverted person of the city of man. What is the mind in the city of man, most disposed to doing? What are the affections most disposed to doing? Where will the will go left to itself? Well, Scripture answers those questions. We learn that the mind is futile. His affections are ignorant and hardened and callous. And that his will is set on evil. That is to say, this free person will freely choose anything except God. Does that make sense? The free, unconverted person is free to choose anything, but they will never choose God apart from grace. Here's the third thing I want you to see. And that is that freedom does not imply ability. Sinful creatures, you see, are free to fly. This is a great example for, for young people. Arlen, am I free to fly? Am I free to fly? Nothing's stopping me. We have a disagreement here between two students, right? I'm free to fly. You're free to fly. Okay, so we're going to do a little object lesson. Are you ready? Arlen, give me the countdown. Three, two, one. You're crazy. So I'm free to fly. There's nothing stopping me, but I'm not able to fly. Some of you are familiar with one of my heroes, Johnny Erickson Tata. 
who's been a quadriplegic for her whole adult life. Johnny is free to jump out of the wheelchair, but someone help me. She's not able. She's free to jump out of the wheelchair, but she's not able. She's free to dance, but she's not able. Sinful creatures are free to come to God, but apart from the grace of God, they're not able. In 1689, there was a confession of faith that was drawn up that was patterned largely after the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's called the Baptist Confession of Faith. You might be interested to know that the Baptist Confession of Faith is absolutely identical on this point to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it says this, Man by his fall into sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in his sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. What are the implications? The bondage of the mind and the affection and the will is absolutely comprehensive. The residents of the city of man are without hope and without God. And apart from the grace of God, the residents of the city of man are doomed. Apart from grace, they will bear the weight of all their sin under the wrath of Almighty God. And I want to close by applying this passage, first of all, to Christ followers. I want to apply this passage to Christ followers and have you think about three very important points of application. First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be wondering how this passage, how these few verses relate to you. Here's the first. Remember your ungodly roots. From time to time, I'll talk to a person and I'll say, tell me your testimony. And the person will say, I always believed. And I always respond with, no, you didn't. (laughs) Have you ever said that? I always believed. I was born a Christian. I was raised in a Christian family. Remember your ungodly roots. Why? Because before the grace of God touched your life, your mind was futile. Before the grace of God invaded your life, your understanding was darkened. Before the grace of God touched your life, your affections were ignorant. Your heart was hardened and callous. It was like a stone that you hold in your hand. Before the grace of God came cascading into your life, your will was in bondage to sin. When you remember your ungodly roots, what does it do? It prompts deep-seated humility in your soul. And when you walk in humility, it leads to worship which greatly honors the God of the universe. You may have heard that John Newton, and we sang one of his songs earlier, said that he was a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. You see, John Newton remembered his ungodly roots. There's a second point of application. I want to have this passage enable you to rekindle your love for lost people. Look out on the vast sea of of inhabitants of the city of man. And when you consider their hopeless condition apart from grace, you should overflow with empathy for them. 
Instead of condemning them, you should have compassion on them. Instead of casting judgment on them, you should show concern for them. Instead of pointing your finger at them, you should be patient with them. And instead of being frustrated with them when they refuse to believe, you should befriend them. Many of you have shared the gospel with an unbelieving friend and they look at you like you're an astronaut from a different planet. And all you did was share the simple message of the gospel. Please remember the condition of their mind, the condition of their affections, and the condition of their will. Apart from grace, they will never believe. There's a final action step for Christians. And that is, I want to encourage you to renew your commitment to righteous living. When Paul admonishes the Ephesians back in verse 17... He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. I shared with you that that word do is written in the present tense, which means the the pagan unbelievers were, were living habitually in sin. Well, the same is true of the believers. The word no longer walk, that word walk is also in the present tense, which suggests this. It suggests that these Christians, these Ephesians are living inconsistent Christian lives. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying it to the Ephesians and he's saying it to each one of us. Stop living like a pagan. Start living in the way that Jesus calls you to live. And we'll see that next week as we examine Paul's prescription for inhabitants of the city of God. Once again, every person in this sanctuary is an inhabitant of one or two cities. And the city that you call home will have radical implications on your life now and in the life to come. The inhabitants of the city of God will enjoy eternal life. And they will be with God and the followers of Jesus for all eternity. The inhabitants of the city of man will live under the wrath of God, both in this life and in the life to come. And so may I close by offering a plea and by offering a challenge to the inhabitants of the city of man. This morning, the word of God has diagnosed your condition with the precision of a laser. You have learned about the radical fallenness of your faculties. You've come face to face with your mind and your affections and your your will, which are all in bondage to sin. If God is working on your heart this morning and you recognize the, the hopelessness of your situation apart from grace, you are in the same exact position as a man in the New Testament who asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that he received was this. And it's my answer to you as well. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You have heard the word of God. Now you are accountable to respond to the invitation of God. Paul says in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. May each of us this morning, on this Mother's Day, find ourselves inside the city walls of the city of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the 
the very important reminder of what uh, my heart was like in the city of, of man. Thank you for the important reminder of what my will was like in the city of man, for the important reminder of what my mind was like in the city of, of man. And thank you, God, for each of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for rescuing us from that city. My heart goes out today for anyone who is an inhabitant of the city of of man. And God, if there is someone here who who has been touched in a very deep way by listening to your word explained, I pray that you would do a, a, a work, a miraculous work in someone's heart. Not just one person, not just two people, but several people. God, would you, would you draw someone to yourself today? Would you be so kind to draw someone to yourself, giving them the ability to believe? A belief that would be utterly impossible apart from your, your gracious invitation and the drawing work of your Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you have heard the word of God and you recognize that you are an inhabitant of the city of man and you realize that you need help, you need help in a desperate way, would you cry out to God? God, I I acknowledge that my mind is futile. My understanding is darkened. My affections, my heart is, is calloused. God, I've turned away from you. My, my will is in bondage to sin, and I realize that I need help. I need a Savior. Like Rosaria Butterfield's mom, who was an atheist, she needed to come face-to-face with the shepherd. If you're in that position, would you call upon the name of the Lord? Lord Jesus Christ, I, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and I trust you now. I turn from my sin, and I turn to Jesus. May you be the shepherd of my soul. Thank you for rescuing me from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. And one day you will rescue rescue me from sin's very presence. God, help us to delight in these things. I pray for Christ's followers that you would enable them by your grace to reach out in this community to people that need to hear the gospel of grace. All for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.